Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, sometimes people are abducted by aliens. Sometimes they go missing. Sometimes they come back. And sometimes they don't. It's Duncan, British Columbia and Snowflake, Arizona. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome to episode six of season three, which means we are officially over the hump. Only four more episodes to go after tonight, and tonight is another one chock full of aliens. I've noticed that this season kind of unintentionally has been a very alien and uh, UFO heavy season. I uh, didn't plan it that way. They just that's what happens. But next episode will be. We'll be very much off the beaten path. I'm going to drink coffee, so if it makes noise, forgive me. 
Murphy. But tonight we're discussing alien abductions uh, with sort of a, a little twist on the end. These are both stories about people who were not only taken by aliens, allegedly, but uh, went missing because of it. It wasn't like, oh, they were gone for a few hours and then they came back. Uh, we're going to be talking about Granger Taylor tonight from Duncan, British Columbia, who went off to find aliens and was never seen again. And then we're going to talk about a guy who you've probably heard about before if you listen to shows like this, uh, Travis Walton, who was missing for five days and then just popped up somewhere near town and had to find a phone booth to find his way back. Uh, and that's in Snowflake, Arizona. Those are our stories tonight, and I am really excited to actually get into both of them, especially the Granger-Taylor one, because it's not a very well-known case. Um, I really... Both of these, both of these stories had issues with documentaries that I wanted to watch. So there's a great uh, kind of Canadian... Is it CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company documentary about Granger Taylor, but you can only watch it if you're in Canada. You can't, like, buy it or rent it off of, like, iTunes or off their streaming off their website or anything. Like, it's, like, region-locked to Canada. So I wasn't able to watch that one. And then there is a documentary called Travis uh, about Travis Walton, which for a long time has been on um, Amazon Prime and for a long time has been in my Amazon Prime watch list. Until the other day when I went to go watch it, and they don't have the rights to it anymore, and the only way that you can watch it now is by going to Travis Walton's website and ordering it. You can't even get it off of like iTunes or anything. So both of the documentaries that I wanted to watch for uh, these topics, I could not. So, but it wasn't too bad. They were both they both had just enough resources if you did some digging, especially on Greater Taylor, to bring up some. Some good sources on them. So I'm not going to waste any more time here. We are, of course, going to play a promo from a Big Heads Media podcast like we are known to do. And when we come back, we'll talk about Granger Taylor from Duncan, British Columbia. Hey, we're Renee. And Adrian. And we are the Outlandish Historians. We're sisters, nerds, and lovers of all things history. Except bell bottoms. Keep that in the past. Come hang out with us on the Dear World of History podcast. We will frolic through time as we chat and geek out over the good, the bad, and the downright ugly history of the world. We promise you don't have to be a licensed historian to travel through time with us. Maritime disasters? Check. Historical serial killers? Check. Glamorous and petty royals? Check and check. You can find us almost anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians. So chug that drink me bottle and come on down the rabbit hole. It's going to be a wild ride. All right, so the first story we're going to talk about the night is Granger Taylor, the tale of Granger Taylor from Duncan, British Columbia. And it is a fantastic story that does not get a lot of coverage. I think there's been a great Vice article written on about it. And like I said, there's that documentary uh, that I can't watch from uh, Canada. So it's it's picking up a little bit of steam, but it's 
it's a, it's a story with a lot of little layers to it and one that I'm really excited and happy to share with everyone. So let's just get on into it. On Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada, there lies the small town of Duncan. Its current population sits at around 4,944. It's a quiet town known for having the largest collection of totem poles. So many, in fact, that in 1985, the city was officially nicknamed City of Totems. However, there is another story about a man named Granger Taylor. Taylor disappeared in 1980. But what may have been even more mysterious is not that he went missing, but where he may have gone. Granger Taylor was born on October 7th of 1948 on Vancouver Island. Taylor was a mixture of a man. He grew up to be large and strong, but was also very shy and a bit of an eccentric. By the age of 12, he built a working one-cylinder car. By 14, he could tear down and rebuild almost any engine you could think of. He quit school in the 8th grade, claiming he had learned everything academic that he needed to know. He found work repairing machinery. He excelled at this and soon self-taught himself many skills, including electronics and welding. If you visit the British Columbia Forest Museum in Duncan, you can see a fully restored steam locomotive that Granger rescued piece by piece from an abandoned logging site. He completely restored it himself to full working order. He also built a sort of man cave out of a couple old satellite dishes and other parts in the shape of a UFO. He built this alongside his friend Robert Keller. Granger and Robert also restored a Kitty Hawk plane. They were best of friends, inseparable, some would say. And excuse me if I hesitate sometimes when I say Granger or Taylor, because he has he has two last names. So every time sometimes when I read it I sit there and go, wait a minute, is that right? But yeah, it's right. It's just me being weird. The UFO just wasn't some cool hangout. It was outfitted with a couch, a TV, and a wood-burning stove. It also represented a secret obsession within Taylor. As time went on, he became more and more infatuated with flight. This interest in flight would soon evolve into how UFOs operated. The spaceship, as it was affectionately called, became more and more important to Granger. It was built in the late 70s and soon became almost a haven for Granger and his thoughts of UFOs and aliens. He would even install a radio that he would use to try and contact extraterrestrials. All of this was further fueled by reoccurring dreams Granger was having, dreams of alien abduction. He and Keller would spend many nights in the spaceship smoking weed, and during these smoking sessions, Keller would go on about finding aliens and experiencing their technology. Taylor also started experimenting with LSD, if only to expand his mind. And I, I kind of like how even when he's talking about alien abduction and he's talking about extraterrestrials and all this, it's still all about the technology. It's still all about the machinery to him. He just wants to experience it. He just wants to know how it works. You know, he doesn't want to, like, contact aliens for some, you know, secret to world peace or all this, you know, what all these other guys do. He just wants to know how the UFO works. The late 70s were hard for Granger Taylor. He was a brilliant but eccentric man, struggling with thoughts and strange dreams. Soon, rumors of his mental well-being began to spread. Many started wondering if he was suicidal. Keller maintains that this was not the case. Granger was the most intelligent, down-to-earth, wise man that I'd ever met in my life, he said. 
It would be on November 29th of 1980 when 32-year-old Granger Taylor would disappear. Many, of course, said he just went somewhere and killed himself. But the note he left his parents was far from a suicide note. It read, Dear Mother and Father, I have gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship. As reoccurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe, then return. I am leaving all my possessions to you as I will no longer will require, and I know there's a typo in there, there's two wills, but that's how he wrote it, the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. Even his will shied away from death. He had crossed out the words death and deceased and replaced them with departure and departed. Granger Taylor vanished in his truck that night in 1980, never to be seen again. During the 42-month time frame he outlined, his parents made sure to leave the back door unlocked in case he found his way back home. The 42 months ended in May of 1984, and of course, Granger never came home. In 1986, some forest workers came upon a large blast area not far from the Granger farm. The blast area was surrounded by a debris field that was 600 feet in diameter. In that debris field were the remains of a truck. There was also shrapnel from the truck, like embedded in trees and stuff like that, as well as bone fragments. Some of the shrapnel still had the truck's VIN number on it. The police traced the VIN number back to Granger. It was his truck. The coroner, based on circumstantial evidence, proclaimed Granger dead. Taylor had been known to use dynamite to blow up tree stumps and usually kept some in his truck. Is it possible that he had some sort of accident with the dynamite? Perhaps. However, Keller has said that Taylor knew his way around dynamite and finds this unlikely. Even if this is the case, the question of why he drove up nearby Mount Prevost that night remains. Something else happened that night. A horrendous storm hit Duncan. A powerful storm that had not been seen in a hundred years. Keller alleges that Granger knew the storm was coming and that the aliens were going to be using it as cover. Did Granger go into the forest to kill himself? Did he go there to meet aliens and was the victim of odd circumstance because of the storm? Or did he reach his ultimate goal to travel among the stars? If you visit Duncan and decide to go visit the British Columbia Forest Museum, be sure to check out Granger's locomotive and wonder about the story of Granger Taylor. And going back to that last point, like, those are the three things, right? I think he might have gone out into the forest to meet aliens, and who knows? I mean, there's a picture of the truck, and it doesn't look like anything hit the truck. Like, I, sometimes I wonder, like, did the storm down a tree branch and hit the truck and compress the TNT, which is essentially nitroglycerin. So I suppose if it got jarred hard enough, it might explode, depending on how unstable and old it was. But then, like, there's no tree. But then it exploded, so maybe there was a tree branch or something. Like, did he get caught up in this storm bad enough where it caused something bad to happen with the explosives that he might have had in his truck? Or did he go up there to commit suicide? And I feel that, like, if he did... Like, they did find bone fragments, and I think it's kind of up in the air on if they were human or not. And if they are human, they didn't find any teeth. 
They didn't find, like, they found, like, this is back in the 70s. DNA wasn't, like, a prevalent thing. So, without teeth, you can't really identify the bone fragments. So they, to the, they, right now, they're just bone fragments, you know? And, I don't know, like, I feel like if you're going to go up and uh, kill yourself in the forest, I don't know if, like, blowing yourself up with dynamite is the way to go, uh, unless that was not his intention. But once again, it seems weird. I don't know. But old dynamite can be an unstable mistress, if you will. So it's possible, I guess. But Or did he, you know, meet aliens, uh, decide not to come back, and just decided it was easier to just make everyone think that he was gone. And he blew up the truck, and, you know, I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know. It's just, it's, it's a great, it's a great mystery to go back and forth on, like, even even if he wasn't uh, taken by aliens, it's still an amazingly interesting story. But that is the story of Granger Taylor. And if you live in Canada and can watch that documentary, um, I would really like to know about it. I'll see if I can put in the show notes the name of it and a link to it so that if you do live in Canada... You can go to that link and you can watch it, and I cannot. But let me know if it's any good, uh, and uh, if there's any anything I missed, any good important bits about it. it I'm I'm really interested in seeing that, and I hope hopefully sometime I'll be able to get my hands on it. But we're gonna have a boom here, and we're gonna come back and talk about uh, a man named Travis Walton, which you may have heard of, and his uh, extraordinary experience with aliens as well. So, hang on. So, uh, the story of Travis Walton, which is a well-known story. There's a book, there's a movie. Uh, I think it's kind of a throw-up right now. Which is the more famous, or which is, the most famous kind of alien abduction case? Is it Betty and Barney Hill, or is it Travis Walton? So it's, it's a well-known story, but once again, it kind of falls in that category of uh, stories that you just have to cover on shows like this uh, when you want to, and I want to. So here we are, and uh, here we go. Snowflake, Arizona, makes its home at the southern end of the very long and skinny Navajo County. It's a town surrounded by desert to the north and forested mountains to the south. There's not much to say about Snowflake. But 1975, the town and surrounding area became the knife point of one of the most famous alien abduction cases ever. Of course, I'm talking about the story of Travis Walton. Travis Walton, at the time, was 22 years old. He lived and worked as a logger in Snowflake. At the time, he was part of a seven-man crew, which included his best friend and employer, Mike Rogers, along with Alan Dallas... John Goulet, Ken Patterson, Steve Pierce, and Dwayne Smith. The team had been tasked with clearing scrub and underbrush on nearby Turkey Springs in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest. Turkey Springs was by far the largest contract the men had won. However, they had fallen behind schedule and had been working overtime. By overtime, I mean overtime, usually 6 a.m. until sunset. So, or at the time it was winter, so we're talking like, we're talking like a 12, 
by 12, 13 hour day sometimes. On Wednesday, November 5th of 1975, just after 6 p.m., the men squeezed in the Rogers pickup and started the trek back to Snowflake. On their way back, the men observed a bright yellowish light emerging from behind a hill. And uh, I'm going to link this to the show notes because it is a great website that has all sorts of audio files from the time. So like little radio snippets and phone calls and like the first interview with Walton when he came back. And he, he talks about how like at first he thought it was the sunset and that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Rogers drove closer to the light. What they saw as the truck grew closer was a flying disc. The disc was about 8 feet high and 20 feet in diameter. John Collette shouted, Stop the truck! And Rogers did. At that moment, Travis Walton shot out of the truck to get a closer look at the dazzling and mysterious object hovering in front of them. Curiosity overtook Walton's fear as he edged closer and closer to the hovering craft. After getting a good look at the thing, Walton turned and started making his way back. It was at this moment that a surging beam of blue light shot from the craft. Walton rose a foot or so off the ground and was thrown back about and was thrown back about ten feet. His right shoulder struck the dirt and he landed limply on the ground. After this, the other men jumped back into the truck and fled as fast as the four by four would carry them. The six men stopped at the nearby town of Heber they then called the police. The call was taken by then-Deputy Sheriff Chuck Ellison. Ellison met them at a nearby shopping center. There, the loggers recounted the rest of the story. So when they um, called him, they just said, Hey, we were up in the woods. Uh, our friend is missing. They didn't say anything about uh, uh, UFO until they met up with him. Some of the men were visibly frightened and crying. Ellison would later go on to say, If they were acting... They were awful good at it. Ellison was joined by Sheriff Marlon Gillespie, along with Officer Ken Copland. Even though there was some skepticism by the police about the story, there was a man missing, so they went back to the site to look for Walton. When they got there, they found nothing. No Walton and no evidence that anything had taken place. The police became more concerned. It was winter in Arizona, and the nights became quite cold. Walton was not dressed to survive, too long in the wilderness and bitter cold. After the search, the authorities then told Mary Walton Kellop, Travis's mother, about what had transpired. She seemed very calm and reserved, and asked if anyone other than the police and the loggers had heard the story. This would go on to uh, further the skepticism of the story. It must be noted, however, that Mary was a stoic woman who had learned over the years not to overreact and let her emotions get the best of her. By that Saturday, the Walton story had become international news. Reporters and UFO investigators invaded the town. Many believed the men, but many also did not. The police returned many times to Mary's home, convinced that she knew more than she was letting on. I guess they kind of suspected for a little bit that he was hiding out somewhere at her house or on the property or something. Out of these many visitors was a UFO researcher named William Spaulding. Spalding assured Travis's brother, Duane, that he could provide a medical doctor to do an examination on Travis should he return. Then, on Monday, November 10th, the whole logging crew were given polygraph tests. All of them passed, except Alan Dallas, who was not able to complete the test, thus rendering it useless. 
What this meant is that the men believed what they saw to be a UFO. Even if it was a hoax, they knew nothing about it. It also said that they had nothing to do with Walton's disappearance. Where was Travis during all of this? He claimed to be aboard an alien spacecraft. He woke up at first thinking he was in the hospital, but once his vision cleared, he found himself on some sort of strange table in a very strange environment. He was approached by three alien greys. Frightened, he jumped off the table, grabbing a nearby glass rod. Walton attempted to break the rod in order to create a makeshift knife, but he could not break it. Instead, he yelled at the beans and swung the rod at them. The three aliens fled and Travis escaped the room. He then came to another room with a chair. Sitting in the chair seemed to activate some sort of star map, and that's speculation on my part, because I assume he says he sat in it and this whole room lit up with stars, and uh, so I'm thinking it's got to be either like a star map or some sort of navigational thing. To me, that's the only thing that makes a whole lot of sense about what that could have been. Travis was able to control the map with controls on the chair. He decided not to mess with the chair too much. As he sat up from the chair, he was approached by another bean. This bean was much more human in size and shape, but had larger eyes and was wearing some sort of helmet. Travis tried asking questions, but he got no response, except a sly grin. Feeling less threatened by this bean, he followed it when it beckoned him to. He was led through a hangar which seemed to be full of the same disc-shaped craft that Walton and his fellow employees had seen the other night. Walton was then led to another room where he met two other of the taller beans. They did not wear any sort of helmet, but also didn't answer any of his questions. He had he had said, I think in his book and, and other things, that he thought maybe this guy didn't this thing didn't hear him because the helmet was over his ears, and then he sees these other two that are not wearing helmets. And I uh, tried asking questions again. He didn't get anything, anytime. Just a grin, just a smile every time. They placed him back on a table, covered his mouth with a mask, and he passed out. He woke up just outside uh, the town of Herber. The night of November 10th. So this is the, uh, the polygraphs were in the day, and now we're into the night of the same day. The night of November 10th, five days after he disappeared, a raspy voice malnourished and dehydrated Travis Walton called his family from a payphone in Heber, or Herber. I'm not sure how you say it. Dwayne went and picked him up and then checked him into the hospital under an assumed name. Travis and his family then went to Phoenix to have Travis looked over by Spalding's doctor, who it turned out was not a medical doctor. He was a hypnotherapist. This drove a wedge between Spalding and the Waltons. Later, on the 11th, the news of Travis's return would become public. Shortly after his return, the Waltons got a call from another UFO researcher. Her name was Coral Lorenzen, and she belonged to ARPO. Uh, or, I'm sorry, APRO. I always say it wrong. APRO, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. And she was able to get him examined by actual medical doctors. Uh, Joseph Saltz, a general practitioner, and pediatrician Howard Kendall. They found him in relative good health, but did find a couple of odd things. His urine lacked ketones. This was weird. If he had been alone in the woods for five days with no food or water, his body would have started to break down fat and thus produce ketones, also known as a ketosis. This is either evidence that he had been slightly nourished by something, or he was never missing in the first place. They also found a small red dot on Walton's elbow. 
It was consistent with a hypodermic needle, but was not near a vein. Walton said he got the mark from work. However, skeptics point out that this could be uh, drugs, but no drugs were ever found in the system. And it's a dot, like it could have been a lot of things. It could have been a bug bite, could have been a needle, but even like if it was drugs, like even if he had injected himself with something like, you still would have to find a vein, wouldn't you? Like, I don't know. I don't think injecting stuff straight into your muscle really does a whole lot as far as like that's concerned. As the years have gone on, Walton has stuck to his story. He has taken many a polygraph since then, I think like 18, 17 or 18, and most of which he has passed. However, there was one given to him by Spalding and Dr. Stewart, the hypnotherapist, which may have contained some inconsistencies. Uh, so that's what they say. They say that when he went to Phoenix, this hypnotherapist, which once again, I don't think a hypnotherapist is like, he's not a... I know they have, like, official name, but I don't know what they are. And I'm not going to look it up. But, but I don't think, like, hypnotherapists are uh, certified, quote-unquote, to be uh, polygraph examiners. But they had given them one, and they said that it was two hours. And the family was like, no, it was 45 minutes. And, and there's been a lot of controversy because of it. Walton was also given one by the National Enquirer, who also bankrolled all this stuff. Like, um... Coral, the, the the person from APRO, uh, didn't want to do it, but the National Enquirer had come and said, hey, you give us access to the story, we'll bankroll everything. So in order to pay for the examinations and all this stuff, she agreed, but it wasn't something that she was super thrilled about. The National Enquirer polygraph test determined that he was lying and it was all a hoax. Uh, the family suppressed the information, saying that the examiner's methods were not fair, and there is some evidence to support this. He asked questions that were designed to basically make him nervous and anxious and just mess up the test. Like, you know, that's the thing about polygraph tests is that if you believe the person, you go, look, it's the polygraph test and this proves everything. If you don't believe the person, then it's... Oh, polygraphs are uh, bumpkiss, you know, and th that's why I guess they aren't admissible in court or anything. And they can be so easily kind of biased. If the person asking the questions is trying to get a certain response, there are things that they can do. There are questions they can ask designed to uh, put the other person on edge and get a false positive. And then on the other hand, there are things that the person being examined can do to mess with the test. Uh, they they tried, you know, the, the examiner for the um, National Enquirer test claimed that he kept trying to hold his breath, which I guess does something to screw up the test. Another polygraph was given to him in 2009 on the show Moment of The Moment of Truth. When asked if he was abducted by aliens on November 5th, 1975, he answered yes. The machine determined it was a lie. However, it must be noted that this TV show was mainly uh, shock value. Like, it wasn't set up to find uh, if people were telling the truth about amazing experiences. It was a show primarily used to dig up dirty secrets and then confront someone's family or someone's friend with it. It was kind of a scandalous show. I vaguely remember. And it came under fire for its dubious methods. It wasn't around too long and... A lot of people don't put a lot of credence into the results of that show. He just did it because he needed money and just got laid off from his job. He didn't want to sign up for that show, and I 
don't blame him, really. Walton would go on to marry Mark, Mike Rogers' sister, Dana Rogers. He worked for a while as a lumber mill foreman. He wrote a book about his experience called The Walton Experience in 1978. It was adapted to a movie in 1993 titled Fire in the Sky, which the book was also then renamed. He re-released it later. Now his book is also going Fire in the Sky. He attends various UFO conferences and even holds his own, known as the Skyfire Summit UFO Conference. If you find yourself in Snowflake, there are many hiking trails in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest to take advantage of. But beware, here there be aliens. And it's a story that I think a lot of people, like, of course, the I didn't even get into Philip Class and what he thought of it because... Philip Class hated UFOs. <laughs> like I didn't know this. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about Philip J. Class for a little bit. He is he was he was just the biggest UFO debunker to the point to where he just hated anything to do with UFOs. Like even in his will, in his will, he uh, left all the UFO nuts, as he would call them. Uh, the UFO curse. He willed it to him. Willed it to them in his will. So, I think that maybe when he started out, he was he, he really was trying to legitimately debunk and find reasons for these experiences. But then by the end of it, he was just such a spiteful person towards the field of ufology that it just, he has no, he had no credence anymore. Uh, he is no longer with us, by the way. But, that's the tale. I mean, uh, Fire in the Sky is a great movie. It, of course, has a lot of liberties taken with it, but it's a very well-made movie, and I kind of dig it. It's another one of those movies like The Mothman Prophecies, right? It's a movie where uh, there are some liberties taken with it, but it's enough to make you... It's a gateway movie, as I like to call it, to make you want to dig into the real story and read his book and visit his website and listen to some podcasts or watch some interviews and find out for yourself what he experienced and what actually happened. Uh, he does point out, like, he's always maintained that the best evidence for his experience is that six men took a polygraph test at, like, you know, one right after the other. Five of them passed it. One of them was inconclusive. Like, he wasn't lying. He just... I think he... I don't know what. I think he just, for some reason, couldn't finish the test. And, uh... There you go. Like, the odds of five men, five out of the six people, passing said polygraph test, like, same set of questions, and I've got a picture of the questions uh, in the show notes. Like, th those are kind of astronomical odds. Like, even if polygraph tests are kind of <laughs> up and down, like, five out of six people getting the same results is a pretty, pretty good thing. And he's always kind of stuck by that, and that makes sense. You know, I once again, you know, I don't know what UFOs are. I don't know what aliens are, but I think that Travis Walton did experience something, and it just, you know, goes to see. I think that so many people would have had to have been in on this. You know, the the six guys that he worked with, his two brothers. I didn't even talk about the other brother, Dwayne, and his other brother, uh, his mom. You know, like all of these people, for it to be some sort of hoax and the fact that no one has ever come forward i mean hey the 
you know, the Patterson-Gimlin film only had two people in it. And there was, you know, it's always been a back and forth about people saying it was a hoax or not. So, like, the fact that all of these people, not one of them, they've all kept their mouths shut. And I don't know, like, yeah, maybe he's made some money off of it. Not a lot. I mean, he took, he had to go on that stupid show because he had lost his job, you know? Like, once again, it's that whole thing, like, he did it to make money. And, yeah, he might, I think they got, like, five grand from National Enquirer. But come on. Like, even in 1975, like, five grand. That's, that's you know, you're not gonna, that ain't, that ain't gonna do it. Um, but once again, like, he, you know, he, that's just the way, the way these things always go. He's, you know, he hasn't made a money off of it, enough to be, like, you know, set up for life. And he's been ridiculed uh, for a very long time. I think it's kind of come back on him. I think there was a time there when the movie came out where it, it, it sparked all that stuff up again. And, and now I'm just rambling, so bear with me. I'm getting there. You know, and and I think a lot of people started to, to dismiss his story because just the way the you know the movie portrayed some stuff. And now he things have kind of calmed down. He's been able to go to conferences and talk about a lot of this stuff and really get his story out there again. And and it's a fascinating story. And uh, look into it more. Like I said, there's there's an, the, the, that website that I have linked is uh, aliens-ufo-research.com. And they have a bunch of stuff, but the Travis Walton stuff was great. Like I said, there's just all of these little audio files about it. So dig into it and uh, let me know what you think, if you would like. So those are our stories for tonight. We're going to take a short intermission, some music, and we're going to come back and do, of course, uh, the local headlines.
All right, we have some news to talk about. Uh, the first is uh, from Coast to Coast by Tim Banal. This is Mystery Creature Baffles New York Town. Authorities in an upstate New York town have identified a weird-looking creature that has been causing something of a stir in the community in recent weeks. In a post on social media, the Hamburg Police Department explained to residents that, for a number of months now, they have been receiving 911 calls from concerned motorists who have spotted what they thought was either a sick dog or an ailing goat lingering around a Ford plant in the town. Fortunately, the police department was able to put an end to the speculation surrounding the creature that revealed, in fact, is actually a deer. The reason for the animal's unique appearance, they explain, is that it is a piebald. The unpigmented condition is actually fairly rare in deer, the department said, affecting just 1 in 30,000 of the creatures. Stressing that the animal is most definitely not sick, they observe that he's just minding his business and advise residents to do the same should they encounter the curious-looking deer. Enjoy the sight when you happen to spot him, the department said, but please drive safely and no snapping, tweeting, or live streaming while operating your vehicle. And there's a picture, it'll be in the show notes, there's a picture of said deer. He seems very small. Like, um, he does have these tiny little, tiny little antlers, and he's white, he's got some black spots on him. And he seems very little. I don't know, because there's a, like a chain-link fence behind him, so I can't tell how tall the chain link fence is but the chain link fence is either very tall or he is a very tiny deer this next one comes from the daily mail uh, written by rory butler a disturbing black rain reported falling over parts of japan incarcerated coronavirus bodies nuclear fallout and pollution were among theories to explain mysterious black rain falling on parts of japan Soot-colored rainwater was reported to authorities and on social media by people living in the Saitama Prefecture in Japan on uh, March 2nd. The majority of black rain reports came from the city of Husada, but other affected areas included Ejio, Iwatsuki, and Kuki. Husada city officials issued a statement saying they were investigating the matter after receiving multiple complaints of black puddles in roadways and on cars, according to Sora News 24. Some Saitama citizens expressed concern over possible nuclear-rated materials in the atmosphere, many on Twitter using hashtag BlackRain. BlackRain came down today over a wide area, said one person on Twitter. It looks like oil and is under investigation. They said they checked the radiation levels and nothing unusual was found. BlackRain is disturbing, they added. Another person wrote, this is a little too scary, while another said, This is about as bad as an omen as you can get these days. Asada city officials were said to have measured radiation levels and found nothing out of the ordinary. However, they added the cause of the black rainwater was a mystery and further investigation was necessary. Another Twitter user wrote, Are they secretly burning the bodies of coronavirus victims? While another said, Didn't North Korea fire missiles on that day? One person on social media speculated whether oil had fallen from a plane passing overhead. Another, sounding slightly more panic, wrote, This is fine. Everything is fine. People who witnessed the black rain covering their homes and property were understandably unnerved, as similar ominous signs were also reported during the Second World War. The United States drops the world's first deployed atomic bomb from a B-29 bomber over the Japanese city of Hiroshima on the 6th of August, 1945. Three days later, the U.S. dropped a second A-bomb over Nagasaki, an estimated 120,000 people were killed during both catastrophic blasts. 
radioactive material was sent up into the atmosphere at the time, causing black rain to fall over areas of nuclear attack. Scientists who tested a uniform worn by a girl exposed to the rain contaminated by the Hiroshima bombing were able to detect cesium-137, a radioactive isotope 70 years later. However, no nuclear activity was reported in Saitama and said, and some have said that the likely explanation for the black rain was pollution, Sora News 24 said. A later, a later emerged that a gigantic fire had broken out in Hisada around the time of the rainfall. It was the blaze as what is thought to be a large commercial building that was speculated to be the cause of the black rain. It's pretty easy to see how much smoke can mix in and dye much of the precipitation black, Sora News 24 said. Other speculation about the fires linked to the black rain also appeared online. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but there was a fire in the area that same day, one person wrote. I think, it's what, I think it was caused by the fire in the area, said another. It was a fire at a plastic factory. There you go, said a third. On Sora News 24, one Sonora News 24 reporter said, it doesn't explain why the city center never acknowledged this on their website. I said a city never acknowledged this on their website, sorry. At the time when the dispersion of information is more important than ever, it's very unsettling that they were either unaware of a gigantic fire in their own city or didn't feel it was necessary to mention while people were online speculating about mass cremations and North Korean missiles, they added. Okay, so our last one, I uh, scrapped the one I was going to do because it was also a Daily Mail article, and I've decided here and now not to do any more Daily Mail articles because the website runs like ass, and I'm tired of fighting it to try to get to the article. So I just kind of looked back on the Coast to Coast website and found a brand new one that wasn't there when I grabbed my news originally, initially for this episode. And this one, once again, is also by Tim Banal, but it's got some great photos and it's kind of a fun article. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, double, double Coast to Coast it tonight with the news. This one is Bigfoot photograph peering through window in Colorado. A remarkable series of photographs taken by a man in Colorado may show a Bigfoot peering into a window. The highly intriguing images were captured back in October of 2017 by Scott Yeoman, who shared them with the public for the first time this past weekend on Facebook. According to him, the incident occurred one evening as he and his wife were refurbishing a mobile home on their 11-acre property in the community of Bailey. Suddenly, the couple were caught off guard by a very harsh odor, which Yeoman said smelled like rotting animal flesh, vomit, and excrement. It was then that he noticed something moving outside the window from the corner of my eye. Since the ledge of the window was approximately seven to eight feet tall, Yeoman suspected that the visitor was a bear trying to look up into the mobile home. However, when he caught sight of the creature's face as it moved closer to the window, Yeoman was struck by how unlike a bear... It was. Its eyes were large and far apart. Upon realization that the thing outside his window was not a bear, he recalled fear struck me hardcore. Then he quickly reached for a camera nearby and snapped a series of pictures. Strangely, Yeoman said, the creature closed its eyes when he first pointed the camera at it. The bewildered witness mused as it was akin to a child acting as if you can't see me if my eyes are closed. About eight minutes into the encounter, Yeoman wrote, his wife came into the room and told her what was, and he told her what was happening. When she saw the creature, she screamed and ran back into the bedroom in the home. Determined to defend themselves, Yeoman grabbed a gun from a closet. However, the creature was moving away from the window by the time he returned. 
Since it had not been tried to get inside, since it had not tried to get inside the room, Yeoman opted not to shoot it as the creature ultimately left the scene in a peaceful fashion. Unfortunately, this case could have been all the more fantastic as the Yeoman said that he actually filmed the creature peering in the window for about 10 minutes. However, a house fire later destroyed the computer that contained the video. According to Yeoman, he occasionally sees signs such as broken tree limbs and eye shine in the nearby wilderness that seem to suggest that the creature is still lurking around the property, but the couple have not had any other close encounters. While undoubtedly disappointing that Yeoman's footage is seemingly lost forever, the photos from that evening are unquestionably thought-provoking and, if they do really show Sasquatch, may be some of the best photos of the creature ever taken. That said, skeptics will likely say that the Bigfoot is either a bear or a product of a clever hoax involving a gorilla suit. What's your take on Yeoman's photos? So go to this and check it out. He's got uh, the, some of the pictures posted there. And a, I think a Facebook link that if you click on it, let's click on it, see where it goes. We'll give you a couple. It's from Expedition, Expedition Bigfoot, their, their Facebook page. Has a, ooh, like 12 pictures here. And they are quite compelling. Mm. It's not a bear. There's no way that's a goddamn bear. But I don't know. I mean, it's pretty good pictures. Um, but check them out and see what you think. And uh, there, there we go. That has been this week's local headlines. We'll be back very shortly with your small town secrets. And at tonight on your small town secrets, I bring you uh, another interview. It's going to be three interviews in a row, maybe four. There's going to be one next week too, or next episode too. I keep saying next week like this isn't a bi-weekly podcast. But uh, I got uh, producer extraordinaire, creator of Small Town Monsters, a great documentary kind of film company series, if you will, who has been making just outstanding documentaries for like the last five or so years. I've used them as sources on my show, most notably probably like the Flatwoods Monster, and I've used them for other ones as well. They are a great source of information, and I wanted to get their creator, Seth Breedlove, uh, on on Skype and talk to him a little bit because they just finished up a Kickstarter for uh, kind of this year's releases, if you will, which include On the Trail of UFOs, an eight-part kind of episodical UFO series, which is fantastic. We talk about it in, in the interview. Uh, they're doing a new Mothman documentary, which we'll talk about. They're doing a Bell Witch documentary and just all sorts of stuff. Uh, they hit a stretch goal, so there's going to be an On the Trail of the Mothman coming out. Just a bunch of stuff, and we talk about it all. Uh, we talk about Benicula. Yes, Benicula the Vampire Bunny and some other things. It's just a fun little interview, very informative, and I'll keep everyone abreast of when these are coming out and how you can find them. Trail um, On the Trail of the UFO is already out, I think. I think you might be able to grab it and watch it on Amazon. Um, I'm not sure. But here's our here's my interview with uh, Seth Breedlove and uh, Small Town Monsters. So it's Small Town Secrets meet Small Town Monsters. So take a listen to it. I'll be back after this finish up the show i always start out uh with this one this first question for most people and i always because i always find it really interesting 
to see which side of the table people are on. And I always want to know, like, what sparked your interest in all this? Was there, like, an experience? <laughs> or are you like me and you just had, like, an, an interest forever and now now you're here where you are? You know, like, I'm, what was she, it? It's, I'm boring in this way because I don't, <laughs> I don't I know, have... So I know I don't have like a crazy experience that happened to me. And in fact, I wasn't even really aware that the paranormal was a thing until the Mothman Prophecies movie came out. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and that was kind of like my introduction to, to all of this. And it, I don't even know if it was it was like a combination of the Mothman Prophecies movie. And then my sister was obsessed with Richard Gere. So she <laughs> saw that movie like a dozen times and then she went and bought the book the the John Keel book mm-hmm. and um I picked up the Keel book and I don't I don't think I read it or anything but I remember her saying that's a you you wouldn't like that book it's it's about like weird people who claim to see like uh a- aliens and stuff and I was right. like wait you mean people actually like think that stuff is real and that was like the first time <laughs> that's the first time I can remember and I would have been in my like I was in my early 20s so so I just hadn't I guess I hadn't been really aware of that kind of stuff um I mean I grew up in a very you know my my family owned a, a historical bookstore and so like you know everything I, I grew up surrounded by war history and historical books and you know like I I guess I just didn't have a knowledge of the fun stuff and so yeah. so like that was that was where I got into it and then there was that that isn't where I got into it. That was like where I became aware of it. And then it right. was for another probably six years or so um, what, bef- before I got interested in it for myself. And most of that was because of um, this like rash of Bigfoot sightings that took place outside of the, the town I grew up in, which was Bolivar, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're in Belleville, right? I'm in Castown. Okay. Which is I don't even know where that is. You know where Dayton's at? Dayton, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's above Dayton. Okay. It's near Troy. I don't know if you know anything about Troy. I know but... Troy, Ohio, yeah. Yeah, so I'm like four miles, maybe four, five miles yeah, outside of Troy. Yeah, far, it's like maybe. you're like yeah, you're, like, you're like maybe two hours. I don't know. I've only had some sort of some sort some of sort device of a device that, that could tell, tell me you such how, a thing. how far you are from from each mm. other. Um. Yeah, the the um uh so anyway, there were there were these Bigfoot sightings that took place um and in outside of the t- the town I grew up in and um and uh I had sort of started like looking into them for myself in like the way you do when you're first getting into this cuz you have no idea what you're doing and you yeah. know, it's it's y- right. you're figuring it out as you go. There was this rash of Bigfoot sightings that took place outside of the town I grew up in. Um, Coincidentally, there was a a lady – this is kind of convoluted – but there was a lady that knew a friend of mine who had told her – or told him about her family's uh, ranch that happened to be right on the same stretch of road where all these people were seeing this stuff starting in the 70s and sort of up to the present day. And um, she owned a ranch. She was a, a, a dentist and her husband was a DA for Stark County um, or Canton. And um, she uh, recounted like all this stuff that now, like looking back on it, seems absolutely in, 
insane in the best kind of way. Like she told stories about her and her kids following these Bigfoot on horseback and like her family just knew they were there. And, and all these stories were corroborated by her children and her husband, which is, wow. I mean, it's, it's some really out there stuff that they were telling us, um, but they're very believable witnesses. So I don't know what to make of any of it now. Um, But, but that was kind of like the point where I got into it was Bigfoot was near the town I, I was living at the time. I started driving the back roads at night and stuff, you know, trying to have an encounter because I had no idea what you do to, to do that. Um, uh, in retrospect, that's probably as good as, you know, a, a, as a good, a good a way of as uh, any of attempting to have some sort of brush with a Bigfoot. Right. Um, but yeah, I did that. And then I, you know, and then I, I was working a medical billing job and I was listening to podcasts and all that kind of stuff. And and mm-hmm. that was, that was where I sort of started to re- really get into it. And then, and then I, I hit upon the idea for, small town monsters at some point in there. And that's, um, yeah. And I pitched that as a book originally and then the book was rejected. And then eventually I just, um, uh, started making a movie with some friends called Minerva monster. And then that sort of k- kicked everything off. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause now I'm looking three hours away, by the way. Yeah. Minerva's yeah. not that far at all. That, that makes sense. Cause I think mm-hmm. the first time I heard about what was the set was Mothman, the second movie, which one, Oh no, Mar- Mothman's the fourth. Uh, oh really? The first is Minerva. Okay. Second is Beast of Whitehall. Beast of Whitehall. And then Hall. Boggy. Okay, they're going and, in order. Okay, I see. Yeah, and then yeah, Mothman, uh, Invasion, Flatwoods, Bray Road. Uh, I think the first time it was, I know it was on Banal, and I think mm-hmm. you, I think you were on there for Mothman. Mm-hmm. So that's probably why I'm thinking that was the first one. Not realizing I've been watching them. Not like you have to yeah. watch them in order. I remember. <laughs> I remember that yeah. going on that show. I've only been on there twice, but um, Tim is hilarious. So I, yeah, I like he's talking. great. He's great. He's very approachable. Like you mm-hmm. know, he'll, yeah. But um, so yeah, so like I, I'm gonna heap some praise. Like yeah, so these if it, for people that don't know, small towns models, you primarily make uh, documentaries, mainly of like the cryptid persuasion. Mm-hmm. and i just i love them like every one of them is is always done really well the production value is great the illustrations that you you have people do are great and you just have so much fun with it like and i said this on a, an episode a while back like the flatwoods monster like the beginning to the flatwoods monster one mm-hmm. just like the old sci-fi movie yeah and and making you know making a Making Lyle Blackburn basically be Joe Bob Briggs for the Momo one. Yeah. And just making it old is, is just a great way to approach it, not just doing the same thing over again. But they're yeah. greatly informative, and they're just so much fun. But It's funny like, you, you say yeah. that about, about Flatwoods opening, because I just – that's one of the ones I'm, like, in the process of exporting so I can send off to this distributor. And um, I hadn't – I don't rewatch our stuff. I really – like, I avoid it. In fact, I – a couple of weeks ago, I put on Beast of Boyhall just because I had to have something playing on my computer so the computer wouldn't crash. Um, <laughs> okay. And yeah, because it's like it's this weird thing where my brand new iMac, if it idles for like two seconds uh, while Adobe is open, it'll crash. So so anyway, like hmm. uh, I was playing Whitehall through and I, w- I was shocked to find that I didn't immediately hate it. But normally I avoid. I avoid all our stuff, but I do know the Whitehall or uh, Flatwoods has always had my favorite. Prob- well, now it's probably my second. I really like the opening to Terror, but um, <laughs> it's probably my favorite opening. And I love the credit sequence because of the music that that like Danny yeah. Elfman type score that Brandon did for that one. I love yeah. that score. 
that is a great one. Well, like, so, so far they've been, you know, just kind of hour long, hour and a half long documentaries, but I guess I didn't realize this when you sent me the stuff that the, on the, on the trail mm-hmm. brand, if you will, is actually like episodic. Yeah. And so you've done a few of those. The first one was, was champ, right? On yeah. The trail of Lake champ. And I then I produced that one and yeah. Alexander, uh, Petikoff directed it. Yeah. Gotcha. And then there's a Bigfoot one, which isn't out yet. No, it came out. It came out. Yeah, on the trail of Bigfoot came out in um twenty. Jeez, I can't keep track of years anymore. Twenty nine. It was last year. Um, it was last March. Yeah, and that's That's actually that's like the second. It might be at this point the biggest, but it's either the second biggest or the biggest title we've ever released in terms of like the viewing audience that has seen. It's millions of people. It's insane. I'll have to go back and do I haven't had a chance to sit down and go through that one. And then, of course, on the trail of UFOs, which you just released for all the Kickstarter, yeah. Kickstarter people. Yeah. Yep. Like I was I found like that one I really loved because A, there's a lot of podcasters in it that if you didn't know what they look like, now you know what they look like. Ryan Sprig and, yeah. and Shannon and everyone. Like so Shannon Legro is kind of the host of that. Mm-hmm. How did that like did you approach her? And she was like, "Hey, let me you know do this like, UFO thing." Like, yeah, Shannon and I have known each other since 2000. Well, we've known each other since like 2012. But in 2014, she was living in Ohio, and uh, her and I both went to a. This is a weird. Again, this is like a weird story. We were <laughs> invited to a taping of Finding Bigfoot, uh, like the town hall meeting, and we both went. And that was like our first time meeting. Was at a taping of Finding Bigfoot. Um, but we had talked since then about wanting to do something together. Uh, but it was kind of like our movies aren't really welcoming to, you know, just like a an expert. I mean, I guess there's experts in them, but it's I, I try to get very specific people in the movies. And typically right. they need to be tied to the story in some way. So there just like hadn't been a, a place for her in any of the films. Mm-hmm. And then um, – you know, we started doing On the Trail of Bigfoot, and when I did On the Trail of Bigfoot, I called her and I was like, would you want to fly up here for like two days to go out with um, Brandon Dalo, Adam Dugan, and I with the Ohio Night Stalkers to do like an overnight Bigfoot hunt? And she said, uh, heck yeah. So we flew her out, and um, she ended up playing like a key role in the series. Like we interviewed her, and she's on camera in that as like a talking head and all kinds of stuff. And she's on, you know, she was part of the expedition. And so we had a lot of fun while she was here. And also, I hate being on camera. Um, and in on the trail of Bigfoot, I'm the host, and I'm gonna be the host for season two as well. But um, I really didn't. I I just I feel really weird about it, and I I also feel like I I have a face for like not be doing that. <laughs> so so like uh so I asked her about you know doing on the trail of UFOs. Uh, we had already announced that was like the follow up, and um, she said yeah, she was all in. So I don't know that she knew. None of us knew at that point though that like that was gonna be the biggest STM shoot we've ever done. It was around 30 days, uh, which for us is an obscene amount of time. And I mean, one of the shoots alone was like 15 days straight. So, so, you know, like we, we work in short bursts, you know, typically like a, like a documentary shoots like four or five days to sometimes three days, three, four days. Like that's what Momo was. I think the documentary portion was like three or four days. And then we'll do like recreations whenever we find the time or whenever we can and always back here in Ohio. But this was like, 
extended periods of time on the road doing doing things. I mean, you can tell when oh, you yeah, watch. Oh yeah, yeah, because you're. Yeah, the the number of locations we hit and all that kind of stuff. So she was, you know, she was game for for anything. And uh, and she was probably the toughest member of the crew there as well. (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah, those are great. Like, I like it because you hit some some stories that aren't super well known. You hit like some small town (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. occurrences and stuff a lot. But I also feel like those eight episodes are a really good primer like if mm-hmm. you're not like you're you you're just getting the ufos and you want to yeah you want to know where to begin i think you watch those eight episodes and you're off to a pretty good start and that's the, the yeah that's yeah. the that's that's always like the audience we're trying to hit and yet it's a tightrope because you want to i mean with that series the idea was okay like ufos are bigger than they've ever been right now and i mean mm-hmm. I, it seems that way. Um, yeah. And and there there are younger people and new people coming into the subject by the day. Um, why don't we make something through through that lens, like viewing the entire phenomenon through the present day lens that also takes a look at the culture, not just the history um, of the subject, and and do it in a way that isn't chronological, by the way. And and that's like that's a big difference between on the trail of Bigfoot because on the trail of Bigfoot is exactly what you would expect from me, Seth Breedlove, mm-hmm. making a, a series about Bigfoot, because it starts with, like, Ostman and Ape Canyon and all that stuff, and then works its way up to present day. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't want to do that with this at all. So, um, so yeah, that it's supposed to act as a gateway for for people that are just kind of coming into this and, and, and people who might not have any interest in it at all, because I, th- I think it's worth looking into. And I think it's, I think that was the whole point we were, we were trying to make with it is there's, there's a lot to the subject that people don't realize, you know, and, and hopefully they'll, but at the same time, we do want to speak to the larger UFO audience. Cause you know, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot, a lot of those people will find it as well. Um, so that's the biggest compliment I've heard so far from people that have watched it is that they'll say like, um, yeah, I can see how this is like, you know, a, a gateway drug kind of thing for, for newbies, but I got a lot out of it. And I think Rob Christopherson from, um, from the, our strange skies mm-hmm. podcast is one of the first people that said that. And that was like, that was great for me. Cause he knows a lot about ufos whereas i'm a i'm a newbie i mean honestly that that series is being made by a bunch of people who are on the outside looking in at ufology and um you know i think i think it was that's the biggest compliment i've gotten so far in the series is people that are telling me you know i there there was a lot in this that was for me and i you know i'm someone that knows this stuff so yeah yeah right yeah that's where i was with it too um what was i gonna say what was the next one so so hold on, guess, sorry. Um, did, did, so did you watch the whole series then, all eight episodes, or? I have to watch. I think the last one. I just couldn't. Yesterday was weird at work, and I couldn't get through in the week. I think I have one more to do. But like, yeah. you know, like I think the one that I really, the one that I really dug because it was, it was a really interesting take on on just like spook lights and stuff. Oh, awesome. I don't know which episode that one was really that's great. Six. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that one comes one of my in. Favorite. Like you know, I never it like. It is a weird thing because you never think of spook lights like, oh, yeah, that should have been. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I just felt like that. I was like, yeah, that should have been really obvious to a lot of people. But I don't think a lot of people think about like maybe these things 
are somehow connected and somehow related. Yeah. I never really thought about them like that before, you know, and that, that was kind of an eye-opening episode. But I think, like I said, I think I, I've got to watch that eighth one still. But yeah, so far out of the seven, that one was the one where it was like, that one was, yeah. That's awesome. That's probably yeah. my favorite one, yeah. But I just That's love, like, cool. going back. The Kexburg stuff is great. Like, I love Kexburg. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no, I don't care if it's you know, a UFO. I don't care if it's a time-traveling Nazi bell. Exactly. <laughs> I've got a I've got an interview that I conducted back in 2017 with someone from Kecksburg. Um, we were going to do a case files episode just to, as like a special, and I never got around to editing it. So I'm hoping if if on the trail of UFO season one does well enough, I'm hoping I can squeeze it into season two because I want to do like a not a Kecksburg episode, but a, a much more Kecksburg centric episode because the when we do tell it, it's in episode five, which is like part of the conspiracies, and you just kind of fly through it in a, in a heartbeat. Of course, we focused on it more in Invasion, but I'd like to get into yeah. – we had Stan talk about like the the disc jockey who was like mysteriously killed and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and I want to get more in into the, the Kecksburg story because there's so much to it. Yeah, I know because like the thing about it is – because I did an episode, I don't know how long ago – there's not even like a good Kexburg book or mm-hmm. anything. You know what I mean? Like, there's a couple, but they're not. Mm-hmm. I don't they're... know why Stan hasn't written a book specifically about it. Yeah, and like he touches on it here and there, but if he, it seems like he needs to really like delve deep into that story at some point. He did the documentary, but the documentary is is getting old. Um, so. Yeah. Maybe I should just update his documentary. He'd be he'd be all. It's funny, like Stan's like one of those people who's kind of become part of the family with mm-hmm. STM. He spent a lot of time with like Mark and Mark Matsky and 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 myself and even my wife and Tommy and like we we kind of just consider Stan part of the family. So right, that's great. Um, so like I like I get it. It's it's small town monsters. So you you usually try to cover kind of the more cryptid. To, cryptid side of things but now you've mm-hmm. branched out into ufos are there any other types of like paranormal phenomenon that you've thought about looking into hauntings oh, or yeah. yeah no anything yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah. um on the trail is really supposed to open that stuff up for us gotcha. so yeah. um so we'll probably so i on the trail is also morphing like <laughs> year by year um and i know last year it was going to be like each year there was going to be a season each each year there was going to be a new topic so like last year was big well the first year was champ second year is bigfoot third year's ufos but it's changing because now i'm launching on the trail of bigfoot season two and we really want to do on the trail of ufos season two so it's almost going to become its own like side i hate this term but it's almost going to become its own like side brand Mm-hmm. With with different series spinning out of the title, so we we want to do on the trail of hauntings. Um, we want obviously we're making a special. Uh, you know those like remember those like hour long, two hour long specials they used to have with like TGIF. <laughs> Uh, back in the back in the like 90s, you know, the made-for-TV specials where they would take like some TV show and then they would extend it for like an hour or whatever. We're gonna do that. Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna do like an on the trail of the like Michigan Mothman uh, special, um, right. directed directed by me, shot by Andrew Peterson, and um, and we're super psyched about that. I'm really excited about it. But um, 
yeah, we want to do dot. We want to do on the trail of American werewolves. Um, That'd be fun. Yeah, we want. There's all. We want to do something about vampires at some point. <laughs> we talked about that. Um, my wife would love if we would do on the trail of sky squids. So, <laughs> so, so there's any number of things we want to tackle with that. And obviously, we're making the mark of the bow, which later this year. I mean, just between us and by yeah, that I guess that window's kind of. By just between us, the edges a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you, me, and your audience. Like, on the trail of is the most exciting thing that I've done in the last like two years. It's it's just very, it it's like reinvigorated my my excitement about going out and doing this stuff. And because because one thing, and I've been pretty open about this. Like one thing about the movies is they've changed over time early on like you know minerva and whitehall it was pick up a camera go out and film like whatever whatever you get that's what you get and it's changed now and we do these like very extensive like lighting setups and everything is we're, we're trying to make everything look gorgeous and that's great i want to yeah. keep doing that but um those are the movies on the trail of is sort of a return to how we started it's like whatever you got go go make something with it mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. and i mean we i still think we can pull gorgeous images yeah they don't I mean, look yeah yeah on yeah. the trail of ufos has some of the, well yeah. yeah the cinematography and that's pretty solid um and i can say that about the scenes that i didn't shoot most of the stuff i shoot looks terrible but um yeah it's a i don't know it's just kind of pumped some life back into me um as far as like ex- excitement about filming itself like going out and filming I love filmmaking. I never get sick of that. But the yeah. the actual process can get so draining when you're when you're spending mm-hmm. like three hours on a lighting setup. Right. Yeah. So I, you kind of touched on this a little bit ago about the about the DJ the whole I'm sorry <clears throat> the whole kind of DJ murder mystery. But like I always wondered, have you ever you know you start research, you start filming some of these documentaries, and you learn about these other stories. Like there's a story. I'll give you an example. Like if I, you know, I'm, I'll give you a, possibly half a half pitch, if you will. Mm-hmm. In um, in the Flatwoods one, there's a story about a crashed UFO on some farmer's field that he yeah. found and then buried. Yeah. For me, the idea that's, that's that the somewhere in West Virginia the there's some buried UFO. Yeah. Like that would be one. Of, like, do you have like? That would be so great to go back and be like, "Ooh, we didn't know about that." Like, yeah. And just now, let's go back and dig into that and see yeah. how much credence there is to to that story and things like that. I think stuff like that would be fun. Have you ever thought about like, yeah, like going back and trying to find some, yeah, yeah, for crashed sure. UFO I, records and change the world. There's that, and there's there's all those stories actually from from the hills around there. Um, yeah. <clears throat> that that movie has so much to it it's so brief like it's such a short film but there's so many little side like rabbit trails yeah you could go down yeah i do love that story about the guy (laughs) burying the i love that when i was like oh man that's all this yeah yeah no i'd I'd love to dig into that um like my dream projects right now are are all not connected to to this stuff like i'd kill to make a movie out of benicula and you know the children's book about the the vampire rabbit. Yeah, the vampire such, rabbit. Yeah, yeah. I get, that's yeah. like my dream movie. I I have a script I wrote when I was like 19 for that. Um, mm-hmm. and I want to do a movie about growing up in the 90s and like, 
I don't know, all that kind of stuff. But there is I want to do Ape Canyon as a as a um narrative film and I want to do and that's going to happen. I don't know when. Next next couple of years we're getting that. I'd say that's in like the very early stages of pre-production. Yeah. Um but yeah, I'd love to get into like some of those little stories like that. And the thing is, I think on the trail of is the perfect place to do that. You wouldn't, you know, you could, you could at least delve into those cases. Cause a lot of times something like that, you're going to turn up a, a minuscule amount of info and there's probably yeah, you don't know, it's a pretty yeah. quick little story. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes those, those little stories just keep expanding and then you end up following threads that, seem to never end yeah, so you, never, you could go down there and be like well we yeah can make a, we can make a, make a six hour out of this one or like out of this. oh no we have to yeah yep right and i i think i'm gonna go ahead and finish up with this mm-hmm. so like you mentioned movies yeah, like, I, I can't believe benicula has not already been made into a movie i know right well there's there's a made for tv movie and then i think there's actually a mini series that they're trying really? to oh. get made right now yeah and it's funny i saw james howe once in a at a mall he was doing a signing. Um, he was doing a signing at a mall, and it stuck with me my entire life. I don't know why. It's just like I remember seeing him and being like, because I was obsessed with the book as a kid, and seeing him and just yeah. one like that was where it all began. I just became obsessed with that book, and then I, I buy every. My wife would back me up on like I any copy of Benicula I see, I buy. It's like this weird. It's kind of isn't that a thing? That might be a. Um, is that There's a fidelity where it's where, a Mel Gibson movie where he's like movie. he's like a conspiracy yeah. nut and every time he sees like Catcher in the Rye yeah he buys it because they can track him that way with the that's what I don't know have. why I know this or remember this movie that's I've a, seen that's it like a half movie. a time I saw I saw that in the theater twice for some reason with my I can't dad. remember what it's called it's but called that's conspiracy what it is. it's called is that it theory. okay yeah. yeah and it's yeah it's like Mel Gibson he, and Julia Roberts yeah and he doesn't know why he does it it's like a but he he does it because they can track him right through the the UPC code or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> so, careful, so maybe there's careful, someone darling. tracking me through through all these Benicula books. I'm buying. Oh boy, that'd be my luck. Yeah, but I guess what I want to ask. So like, is there a white whale story that like a doc like a, a topic that you would really like to do that you haven't done? Like a really you know like. Just something really, I don't know, like Bunny Man or something <laughs> really yeah. on the fringe like that that you guys have not got a chance to do yet. Boy, it's it's weird because I have an answer for this and I'm not sure. That's your I think I think, she, I think she'd be okay with me saying so. So my friend Heather, who who also is like our research girl at STM, she does she does all our research. Not all of it. She does a lot of our our research and and helps me track names and stuff like that these days. Heather Mosier. Um, she has a relative who went missing in Canada. Um, and this was in like the, uh, I'm wrong, I'm gonna get the era wrong, but it was like the 30s or 40s or something. It was a very long time ago. And they went missing in Canada, and um, they've they. They basically found that that they were like suspiciously murdered. I mean, it was pretty clear that they were they were suspiciously murdered or killed or or whatever. There were like bullet holes in their canoes. One of the bodies turned up. But what was really weird is like the the wife of this man that went missing became kind of obsessed with it and eventually hired like a native tracker over there to go find them. And this guy grew up in the area, knew the land, was a tracker, and also 
suspiciously went missing after he went to find the bodies. And Heather shared all the info on this with me, and there's there's a lot more to it. It, it was an extensive, like it was almost a mini book, what she sent me. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's stuck with me now for like two years since she, or probably over a year since she told it to me. And there's also a really weird looking photograph. They found a camera at the, the campsite of these guys, you know, they're, they're out in the middle of nowhere in Canada in like the Canadian wilderness. And, um, they had a camera and when they developed it, there was like one photo and it was just of this, this forest. And then there's something really weird sitting in the middle of it. And you can't tell if it's like a, a close up of like a jug on a log or, uh, Zach that shoots our movies looked at it and thought it looked like a, like a skeleton face. Mm. Uh, it's a mm. really weird story and um and i'd love to i'd love to do something with that i just think you'd have to get really investigative i mean you'd have to go there and be there for it's nothing i can pull off right now but that might yeah. be the that might be the white whale it's either that or it's Benicula the movie <laughs> but yeah yeah that'd be fun yeah yeah okay so i think yeah we're at about half an hour we're good so what do you got the plug plug away I know, you got a, I know you got a podcast. Right? Oh yeah, um, Monsteropolis mm-hmm. uh, is my podcast. I do that with uh, Mark Matsky, who uh, appears in On the Trail of UFOs and also in On the Trail of Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we have On the Trail of UFOs coming out next Friday. Um, we have On the Trail of Lake Michigan Mothman, and we have the Mothman Legacy coming in fall. Of this year, and then we have the Mark of the Bell Witch. So, all of that and probably more. Like, we're going to be... Yeah. I know I'm going to British Columbia in August to shoot stuff for On the Trail of Bigfoot Season 2. So, there's, it's going to be a crazy year. I don't know how we're keeping up with all of it, especially with the coronavirus lurking about. So, we'll see. Awesome. Yeah, actually, so the episode this is going to be on is going to be kind of a, a UFO-centric episode. Oh, cool. And I'm going to be doing... I always try to theme them. So this theme is alien abductions, but alien abductions where people have gone missing. So and one person's come back and the other person has it. So I'm doing, mm-hmm. of course, Travis Walton, yeah. which is Snowflake, Arizona. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about Granger Taylor from Duncan, British Columbia, who apparently went up into the mountains one day to find UFO. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, he never came back. And all they ever found was his truck. No so, kidding. Yeah. Hmm. So Do you know gonna, where specifically? In uh, I've got Duncan, British Columbia is the town. Mm. I will send you. I've got some articles bookmarked about it. Interesting. Uh, I'll write that down and I'll I'll uh I'll send you some links via yeah. Twitter. Yeah, so that'd be check super it out. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. Actually, I think I think Ryan Sprigg did an episode about it too. Oh, cool. On 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 his. Yeah. yeah. So you can check I'll that. Have to look it up. Awesome. awesome. So that'll work. Cool, and, man. Uh, I think that'll be it. So, yep. Let me know when they get close, and you know, we'll do some signal boosting for you. So that this episode, I'll probably go ahead and, like end it here, but I'm just gonna talk to you for a minute. Mm-hmm. This episode won't be this Friday, but it'll be next Friday. Yeah. So like, if you find out in the next week that she doesn't want you to share said story mm-hmm. about, let me know, and I'll cut it out. So She'll be okay to... with that. She's I I when she shared everything with me, she was cool with me like posting it on my Facebook. I didn't, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it it. There's so much to that story, 
Um, it kind of bothers me. I haven't looked it over since. It's super emotional too, because like his, yeah. you know, his wife like spent the rest of her life wondering what happened to him, and became wrote like a a huge manuscript uh, about it, and her children won't. It sounds like they destroyed it. <laughs> so there's some there's some really weird, uh, but personal like uh, stuff to that story. I've I've I just really would like to dig into it at some point. It's really interesting. Yeah, I bet. Oh no, brought my marker. Okay, I think I think that'll do good. So I'm gonna go ahead and I'll let you have the rest of your evening. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. This was really fun. Yeah. Thanks and- for having me. And so that is tonight's show. Uh, thanks to Seth Breedlove once again. Uh, I'll put some stuff in the show notes, his Twitter and all that. And um, go check that out. Those are, like I said, those are great documentaries, great informative stuff. But if you have a small town secret to share, albeit a UFO story, a Bigfoot encounter, uh, some true crime stuff. Uh, anything like that. It can even be something whimsical and fun. Like it doesn't have to be like dark and ooky spooky or anything. But uh, do you have a story of a vampire bunny? That'd be kind of fun. That'd be kind of cool. Uh, you can get it to me in a myriad of ways. Please first check out stscast.com. There is an email form at the bottom of the page that you can fill out and you can send it to me and get it that way. Also on that website, uh, all the show notes to every episode. Um, you can also stream it from there. I don't know if I say that a lot. Like, if worse comes to worse and you want to listen to the show and for some reason uh, you can't, you can always go to the show and go to the episodes and you can, like, listen to it directly from the website. But, like I said, there's merch on there. There's links to all the show's uh, sources in the show notes, pictures in the show notes. All of that are on uh, stscast.com. You can also get at me on social media, most active on the Twitter, at STScast there. Uh, It's also at STScast on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram uh, at STScast.gram. And you can use those platforms as well to get me your story if you would like. And we can do it anyway. You just want to write it in. You want to point me towards an article. uh, You want to come on on Skype and have an interview and talk about it. We can figure it out. We can do it almost any way uh, you want to do it. And that's the show. And I want to thank once again everyone who listens, uh, that listens, and for listening, and continuing to listen, and and just help out the show by telling a friend. If all of you got one more person to listen to the show, then the listeners would double, you know. Uh, Please leave a rating review on your podcatcher of choice especially if it's on iTunes. That really helps the show kind of get up there and get noticed more. And uh, I'm not going to harp on it too much because I know that a lot of people are using podcasts and stuff as an escape to kind of get away from uh, what is going on in the world at the moment. But I just want to let everyone know that as long as I can do this, I will do this. I don't see any reason why I'll be able to stop. I think I'll be okay. But everyone out there, stay safe, uh, stay healthy, stay kind, and uh, stay home if you can. I know not everyone can. And for the people that can't, uh, I applaud you. And I hope that we all come 
on the other end of this coronavirus thing out on the other end uh, better than we are when we went into it. But I'm going to leave everyone with that. Those words of wisdom, and that's all I'm going to say. So uh, until next time, like always, every town has a secret. What is yours? Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.